Who are you? Yeah, I'm Tomas Prower. I am a half Irish, half Latino author who writes books mostly in nonfiction about worldwide mysticism, culture, and the taboo, and put it all together and just investigating subcultures of the mystical and the magical all over this globe. What are the three things you value most in life? That's interesting. This is this is this is already one of the most different pod, <laughs> podcasts I've ever been on, um, which is good, which is really good. It's making me think because I don't have like pre-prepped answers. Yeah, that's why I don't give anyone the questions and wait until this gets on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Um, God, what is it the most? It's weird because like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked myself that. Probably I'd have to say, oh God, I guess I value, I probably value respect honesty and beauty probably respect because that that's essentially what the make makes the world go around i mean you can you can't love someone you don't respect um respect is the basic foundation for any relationship that i want to have whether it's a friend i have to respect you if i don't respect you i'm not going to be your friend i'm not going to marry you i'm not going to date you i'm not going to take you seriously i'm probably not even going to listen to you when you talk so respect is number one. Um, trust. Trust is also goes with that because I have to, I don't want to be second guessing myself and what people say and try to double think and do they have ulterior motives. Um, so if I can trust you and if I can respect you, then I'm all open to hear all the wisdom you have to hear. Um, and beauty, because that's that, that's what makes life worth living, whether it's just, you know, looking outside, the beauty in someone. I mean, if you have a world that's no beauty, then that's it. I mean, there's, why are you living? <laughs> Tell me a memory which shaped you. Um, the biggest memory that shaped me was there was this one time years ago, years ago, years ago, and you know, I remember it vividly, wherein I truly believed I was going to die. Um, not it's like, oh, you know, I, I, something just missed my head as it flew by me. No, it was like, I was pretty sure I had a medical di- diagnosis in which I was going to die. And I had possibly one, possibly two months to live. And it was, and I can still put myself in that position and think back on that memory and what it was honestly like thinking you have 30 to 60 days left to do absolutely everything you've ever wanted to do. And I was much younger then, much younger. There's so much I hadn't done. And I realized how much time I had absolutely wasted. I was like, what are those stupid TV shows I was watching? Why did I replay that video game for the 50th time? You know, it was just, it really got me thinking. It's just like, okay, I need to achieve something. I have 30, 60 days to do it. And that's when I wrote my first book. Cause I was like, this is it. I have one chance and I got to finish this. And it just really pushed me. And so whenever I start something really momentous or another project, I always think back to that memory. And it was like, okay, you have 30 to 60 days. This is it. This is going to be your legacy. Do what you got to do. And you, even from then, like it helped every, everything else um, since then, like, I don't want to say I became a snob, but I became kind of um, picky. Um, I started when I realized, surprise, surprise, I wasn't going to die and it wasn't, you know, a truthful diagnosis. Um, I still kept that mentality. And so I started being very picky about what I read. I wanted to read all the classics. I want to read the great books that everyone always says they read, but they never really do. 
I wanted to watch all the great movies I've never seen. Like I've always heard of Gone with the Wind and Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai. And it's like, why are those so good? Because I might die tomorrow. Like just because I know I'm not going to die, that doesn't mean I'm not. So, and if I have that finite time again, I want to fill my life with the best of humanity. You know, the greatest beauty. What are the best movies? I want to see that. What are the best books? I want to read those. And, you know, from there, just reading and watching the best, it really, really upped my game professionally when it came time for me to write. So it, but it all goes back to that memory of when I, honest to God, thought I was going to die. What's your favorite color? My favorite color is actually green. I love green. It's been green. It was originally yellow when I was a child because I remember loving the yellow Power Ranger because she was yellow, like the Power Ranger costume because it's a bright, happy color. But it's been green for a long time because it's it's that nature color. And, you know, growing up in Southern California, the Los Angeles, you know, there's no nature. And so green was this rare thing, like in, in the Bible, how the Garden of Eden is all, you know, it's this green verdant place because they're living in a sandbox. It's the same thing. It's I don't see too much green. And so it's that much more magical. Uh, my favorite color is orange uh, because oh. I reckon if orange was a person, they'd be a really cool person. I had a different reason for orange being my favorite color. And then one of the guests on my show told me why their favorite color was yellow which was that if yellow was a color, it would be their favorite person. And I've, I've realized that, yes, if orange, was a, if orange was a person, it would be an awesome person. And I just want to know the color orange. That's, that's a brilliant way of thinking about it. That's it's very unique. Yeah. I don't think I'd get along with green, but <laughs> I, think, I think I'd get along with purple, maybe gray. But God, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. It changed my way of looking at colors as well, particularly because... I've become so accustomed to vibrancy now because I didn't see vibrancy before mm-hmm. I started hormones. And now I see kind of a lot more vibrant colors. And when I'm, when, when I see the world now, I view it through the lens of, am I getting the most saturated, vibrant version of the world that I want to live in? Um, because gray is great if gray is the color that you want to see. But if your entire world is gray, you miss out on so much that because not nothing is one color. There is literally nothing you can look at that is one color. This is not right. black. This is, you know, three different colors. This is this piece of paper isn't white. You know, there is no such thing. It doesn't make sense. And so once you start realizing that and start realizing that we've just vaguely categorized colors in wavelengths and gone, this little vibration of light is purple and this one is blue you're like this is bullshit there's like a million different colors and and it's awesome i want to see every single one of them i want to see the infrared colors you know i want to see everything that's why that question exists tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of which once existed and now does not um my innocence of looking at the world (laughs) (laughs) um but a, a real answer a real practical, practical answer that I can give is I used to, there was a time when I was stationed out in the Amazon jungle um, in the village of Iquitos and we traveled um, down the river for a while. So I'm sure I've like very much seen flowers, plants, little things that may not have a name, but are just lost to time because, you know, the Amazon, <laughs> unfortunately the Amazon's going. I mean, I, 
you know, that I think of it, it's probably very beautiful that I saw that. But the practical answer is I've, I've, I've probably seen some, some sort of flora or fauna about it. That's awesome. It always fascinates me in nature to see, like, I'm sure that when I'm walking up the road, because I, I live in the middle of the countryside, I'm sure there is a flower or a plant that, that will never be seen again. But because I don't know anything about flora and fauna, I'll never categorize it. So next year it'll be dead and I, it will have never existed before. It was an odd mutation and that was it. Yes, no, that, that's, it, it's, it's great, great. And, you know, that even got me thinking this very subliminally, a little tick I have that I notice is little background images that make no difference and don't matter, but take place in that. So, for example, let's say you're looking at me and I have a calendar in the back. I don't. But if I, you know, if I had a calendar, um, it would be at the date. It would be September 2020. And then for as long as this video exists here that we're looking at each other, right there it would be forever that september 2020 it doesn't matter but it's that little thing if i visit let's say i you know have a very i have a first date you know and things go well and you know we go back to their place you know and then my first image my capture of them the way they live how everything is you know there'll be that calendar right there and it'll be whatever date whatever year and that's i don't notice it but it's absorbed by me just these little unknown differences that leave time like that i don't know if that makes sense it makes sense to me when i know it, it does make sense i i think our mind uh, crystallizes individual moments all the time and absorbs way more than we can ever possibly imagine or comprehend yeah. because our conscious brain is not capable of processing all of the stuff that we go through like working on breathing oh, yeah. and you know being alive and trying to be happy and all of this stuff but it is possible. It's still absorbing all of that stuff. You still see the calendar. And if you kind of stay, like, if you notice patterns, if you look for patterns and things, you'll yes. find patterns. Yes. And, oh, yes. it, but if you don't notice the patterns, you'll never notice the patterns. Do you know what I mean? Even though your brain is still thinking up of the, is still recognizing, Oh, here's three numbers that look the same. Oh, here's, mm -hmm. you know, this person that I've seen this hairstyle 15 times today. Oh, I've seen three blue cars. You'll notice them if you look for them and your brain is always no noticing them. So it has to be a conscious decision to look for things like that. So yeah, I completely understand because you're never going to see anything. No day of your life is going to be the same. Even if you feel like it is, you're going to do something differently right, and, something, right. and something, you know, mad and different, which is why I think if you can, if you're going to do something different every day, make sure it's something different and interesting because mm -hmm. like you can either brush your teeth in a different way or you can go to a different country and that's up to you. Oh, well, maybe not during a pandemic, but... <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> what, if anything, is perfect? I don't think anything's perfect, to be honest. And not, not just that, like, iconoclastic answer of, like, nothing's perfect. But, no, I honestly... I, I don't think anything is an extreme of anything. I don't think extremes exist, because I don't think the limit exists. So I don't think anything can really be perfect. And, you know, if you if you were if anyone who's worked in the arts knows this, you know, for damn sure, if you're working on a book or you're composing a piece of music or you're doing a painting or you do anything creative, you can always do more. I can always edit the book again. It can always be better. And if I've given five years to write a book, that book would be better than if it was written in four years and three years, because I could always tweak something. I could always refix something. There's always new information. Add another color. Mix these notes differently. So 
I think everything could always get better. But, you know, we, we're all mortal and we eventually die. So I don't think any of us can achieve that. So and I also don't think anything in the world's like that because everything is, you know, constantly evolving, constantly growing, constantly changing in some form. So I don't think anything's perfect, you know, straight up. <laughs> Who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind and why? Oh, damn. Oh, God. It would probably have to be Xena, the warrior princess. Besides me obsessing about that show, loving it, and thinking it's one of the most profound things ever done. It's interesting because a lot, I'm not, I'm actually not really big on superheroes. Um, I'm not big on, you know, comic book characters because when I, when I try to look for drama or, you know, things to entertain me with drama-esque-ness, um, I don't relate to someone, have, someone having super magical powers dealing with an issue or a whole lot of money to throw at an issue. I'm like, how does this average person deal with it? And so, you know, back in the nineties when the Hercules and Xena live action adventures were like all over the TV. Um, I never liked the Hercules one. Cause it was, here's this guy with, you know, superhuman strength and godlike powers. And he's bumbling around the world, solving problems with his powers. Xena's not like that. Xena's an average person. And that's why I really loved it. She's super talented, super skilled. But it's not something a human is incapable of learning themselves with training. And it, it's not super. It's just really highly skilled. And that's what I like because whenever, whenever there's a problem, you know, I don't like to call out to a hero, you know, where's the Hercules? Where's the Superman? Hopefully they'll come and fix it. Xena's that character that I've always seen. It's the hero within you. It's what can you do about this? If you set your mind to it, how can you do it? And you know, honestly, through watching the Xena series, each episode is like that. It's how, how does an average person, highly trained, highly skilled, solve this problem without, yeah, of course, there's magic and the gods metal in it because it's Greek mythology. But at the end of the day, she's just an average mortal woman who puts her minds to it. And I, that's what I really like about it. And so of all the fictional characters, I I respect her the most and I would like to be like her the most. What fascinates you? God, everything. But that's too much of a cop-out answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and on, God, what interests me? I think, I think it, if, if something really interests me, it's probably a puzzle of some sort because I like, I like solving things. I always like trying to figure things out. My favorite kind of movies are, um, you know, those mysteries or those whodunits and those thrillers where you're trying to figure out you know the the bad guy or what happened and I, I always like that and that's that's really what's driven me with a lot of stuff like I you know when I was a kid I I only spoke English um, my grandparents spoke Spanish and my 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 Hispanic mother does not speak Spanish and neither really do any of my aunts or uncles because when my grandparents came here they wanted their children to assimilate and, you know, if they spoke and they had a very, you know, Latino Mexican accent, they'd get ridiculed at school, which did happen. So then they stopped speaking Spanish to their kids. But, you know, I said that story because my grandparents kind of raised, you know, all me and all my cousins and babysat while all of our parents were working because we all lived in the same kind of Los Angeles neighborhood. And in doing that, the <laughs> you know, whenever grandma wanted to talk to grandpa or vice versa and they didn't want us to hear, they would switch into Spanish. And again, it's like, what are they saying? You know, and it's that always that mystery. Like, I want to know. I don't, I don't want to be excluded from that. What is this puzzle? What's the mystery? What are they saying about me? Are they saying something about me? 
you know, it, so it all goes into that. I'm like, so I'm going to learn Spanish. And I did. I learned it through school. But um, yeah, so it's, it's always goes into that puzzle and just trying to find out stuff that I wouldn't know by myself, just bumbling around in the universe and or things that are specifically withheld from me. I guess now that I speak through it, it's probably I don't want to not have access to everything. I, I don't want any doors closed to me. And so I, I want to learn more and pursue and solve all these puzzles so that I have the keys to enter every door that I wish. Whether it be a language, whether it be some knowledge or insight, whether it be whatever, I want to have all the pieces to the puzzle and get in. What is the most valuable thing you've ever learned? Probably to believe in myself, really. If I have that root, root answer. <laughs> yeah, because that served me very well. It served me for everything, absolutely everything I've ever done that was, you know, uh, productive or achievable or successful. Um, earlier in my life, I didn't think I was. And that kind of just, you know, it creates the reality of that. Because if you don't think you can do something, you know, why try? Or you go in with that attitude of like, oh, well, you know, I'll do it, but I'm probably not the best. So let me just try my best and let's see what happens. You know, and no, 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 nothing great comes from that. <laughs> nothing great comes from that unless you're lying or you're lying to whoever you're telling that. Um, but no, 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 no. It was probably really believing myself because once I'm like, yes, I can do this. And I can make it the best and I can be, you know, not better than everyone, but I can make something amazing. Once, once I started realizing that, whether it was true or not, once I convinced myself of that, um, I started to act like it. And once I started to act like it, people believed it, again, whether it was true or not. And the more it builds up, the more it believes up. Um, I empower myself from the inside, but I also empower myself from the outside because all these other people are believing it. So whether I believe it or not, it becomes reality and it eventually did become reality. How did you learn to believe in yourself? Oh, um, honestly, it was from, <laughs> I think it was from one of your previous guests. It was from uh, B. Dave Walters when I first hit him up. Long story short with that one is I, um, I, was, I was in a rough place. I was, I was in university and I was at a real rough place. I just got like dumped for the second time in a row. Bo both trash people, both beautiful garbage, <laughs> but again, second time in a row. And, you know, it was, it was that whole woe is me. Like, what's, what's going on? Why me? Why? You know, that, that whole mess that we go through. And I was going through that. And that was the time when um, a friend of mine in Los Angeles actually said, hey, a very, su very successful friend of mine was, says, hey, have you heard of something called The Secret? And I was like, no, what the hell is that? And they just told me about it, told me about Louise Hay and all, you know, the, the affirmations, everything. And I was like, mm, okay. So I saw it. Very good film. You know, it hyped me up big time, right when I really needed it. And I got really into it, really into it. You know, this is back, I was in the Facebook secret, yeah, the secret group for it. And then I, you know, because everyone's writing the stories of how they became how they manifested God knows what into their life, you know, sharing secrets and tips of how to do it, how to become better at the law of attraction. And I was all into it. And um, B. Dave Walters was in that group. And I noticed, you know, a pattern. What of all, of all these people talking about their manifestations, this guy, this guy had some profound wisdom in what he was typing and saying. Like it, it stood out consistently. And I don't know what inspired me to do it, but I like messaged him in the group. I was like, hey, 
I don't know you. You don't know me. I'm new learning this law of attraction stuff. What you're throwing down really resonates with me. Teach me your way, sensei. And he said, yeah, sure. And that's how it began. And he gave me some, you know, some, some mystical advice, some magical advice, some good advice. And he really got me to believe in myself, um, be confident in myself. Because if I was under his tutelage and training, he wasn't going to waste his time and spend some time on someone who wasn't going to believe in themselves. If he was going to believe in me, I needed to do it. It's, it's that whole, you know, if you look back at all those like 1970s kung fu films where like, you know, the master teaches the student and the student like plays around or doesn't really believe in it. So the master just like, get out of my sight. It would have been one of those scenarios. And he was very much aware of like, am I committed to this? Am I just asking just to ask because it's the next place I've kind of just like bumbled into for the moment phase. But no, um, I took it seriously and I really believed in myself. Again, I didn't at first because it was all fake it to make it. But God, God, yeah, he, he's the one who really got me on way and taught me. And just, there's nothing you don't already know about yourself or whatever you're lying to it, but the way in which people say things can resonate with you. Yeah, that's why all these like self-help books, they all say the same thing. You go to the core of all the religions, the same thing, but it's, it's the way it's said. The way a certain person may say it and we just click with you. And the way, you know, B. Dave said it, it just clicked with me. I was like, okay, this totally makes sense. And then I started applying it and I started getting results. And, you know, that empowers you. It's like, oh, I really can enact change in the world and have, you know, success. And um, yeah, we just, it was, it was great. And that's where, that's where I got my start. If you could name a hot sauce, what would you call it and why? I'm not, I'm not, I'm that person that it was just like, Make sure it's not spicy. Don't put the hot sauce in. So my hot sauce would probably be hot sauceless hot sauce, or probably not sauce. Some sort of like weird play on words with that. But it would be. I would be like, mm mm. <laughs> I could not endorse my own product with that. At least not without clever editing. But you no, know, it would probably something something stupid like that, like not sauce. What is your most prized physical possession? As I scan my room right now. Everyone does it. Everyone does the exact same thing. They go, oh, f- f- what, do I, what do I own? Um, uh. it, it's strange because I'm actually, I'm actually very minimalist, but not in that like super cool Marie Kondo way. <laughs> Just like, it's because I've, I've traveled, not traveled, I've moved and I've lived in so many places. I haven't been in one place for too long. You know, I've lived in Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Reno, Vegas, you know, all Buenos Aires, Santiago, Chile, the Amazon. Like, I don't like having a lot of stuff because it's, it's logistically difficult for me. <laughs> so I don't have much stuff. But my most treasured possession, um, the most useful one's probably my laptop because that's where I do all my writing and I get all my work done. And I have, you know, I could do all this amazing stuff like this right now. But God, my most treasured possessions. I'm that kind of person who also like goes on vacation and doesn't take photos because I don't like to stop and like take a photo to remember it. I'm like, if I don't remember it, it wasn't that important. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So about after 30 minutes of thinking, it's probably, it has to be um, my iPod. Cause I, it's, it's the one thing that I still have. Like they don't make iPods anymore. I can't get it repaired and it's, you know, cracked and not working correctly. Um, 
but I still have it. It's it's way it's it's so old and it's 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 so bad. It's not working right. But I refuse to give it away because I love doing that. I love going out and like going on long walks and listening to music, and that's my that's my meditation. So because I can carry that everywhere, it's probably the most cherished thing. And I I used to take it absolutely everywhere, but definitely my iPod because it, it it's access to music everywhere. It's that classic little black one with the wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm I I'm not a big fan of technology, so I actually don't like putting music on my phone. I don't like having pictures on my phone. My phone is to call people. My phone is to text people and occasionally go onto the internet if I'm lost somewhere and need help immediately. But yeah, I like to have a separate device for my music, and I, so it's that classic little black iPod. What inspires you? Mm, it's tricky because when, whenever I think when all the answers that come to my head end up being like what drives me <laughs> but that's not what inspires me that's the opposite okay you know what really inspires me now that I know <laughs> what really inspires me is things not things that I don't see coming but things that I would never even completely think about or know that exist if I see a, a movie that completely blows my mind and how it's written and how it's done I'm just like that is so amazing the way that story was told. I want to write a story like that. I want to do that. Or I hear a new kind of music um, and it just blows my mind, this new genre, this new, this new way that, you know, heavy metal guitars, you know, playing this riff. I'm like, oh my God, that's so amazing. I want to know how to do that. And so just seeing something different that would never would have thought of that completely blows my mind usually inspires me to want to like match it or do it myself or do at least my genre version of it. So that's definitely what inspires me. Did you ever have an epiphany? If so, what was it about? (laughs) God, I have epiphanies all the time. Not to be be like super pompous, like, oh, I have another epiphany today. Eureka. You know, (laughs) nothing like that. But in the sense of, in the sense of like, everyone should be having epiphanies a lot. It, sh- it, sh- it should not be this like rare thing that you, that you get once in a while, unless you're like repressing yourself for some reason. I mean, if you're open, if you're completely open to the world and you go through diverse things and you don't have your mind set on specific outcomes of things, you can get all sorts of epiphanies. If you know, if you do something with the intention of a very specific outcome, you'll be looking for that specific outcome or why that specific outcome didn't happen. And so it kind of like tunnel visions your mind into it. But if you don't, then you just have more freaking epiphanies because everything comes to and surprises you. And again, like that, like that inspiration thing, it's like, Oh, I didn't know that could be like that. Of course I never would have like planned it. But gosh, uh, but the biggest epiphany is, is going back to the question. It's that time when I thought I was going to die. And then I realized, Oh, Look how short, look how I've done nothing with my life so far. Look at how I've wasted so much time. I got to get down to it. That was definitely the biggest epiphany. Realizing just the waste of time I used to do on everything. If you could say all of your work had a theme, what would that theme be? The theme is probably that morality is subjective or that everything is subjective. I like I like writing those stories or bringing up those scenarios where there are there is no good answer and there is no bad answer. It's just the answer you choose and how you justify it to yourself. Um, like w- one of the things I used to say a lot was, "Imagine you're in this scenario. Imagine that 
who, which is the better person in this scenario? Someone who helps the poor and helps the needy, but, is all, but cares absolutely nothing about them, thinks they're trash, is super racist, puts them down verbally, but donates to all those causes, actually, you know, funds things for their own vain glory. Or the person who truly cares about them, wants to make a difference in the world, wants to help people, is empathetically suffering that they're suffering, but doesn't have the money to donate, doesn't have the free time to actually help in any way. Who's actually making the world a better place? The person who absolutely doesn't care and is a horrid monster, but is enacting change, or the person who cares a lot, but is essentially inconsequential in the world and will not make a difference any way, shape, or form towards what they want. If you're the person suffering, which one of those people would you like to exist more in the world? Mm. It's, I like, st- I like stuff like that. I love stuff like that. I always try to work into it. So in a lot of my books, a lot of the fiction books are based on that. And a lot of the nonfiction books, it shows real scenarios like that. Well, look, look at all these quote unquote bad people and look how they've shaped the world for the better. You know, look at all these good people and look how they kind of failed. And just showing how everything is really subjective and there's no, there's no absolutes to everything. That is something I love. That's my theme. I'm trying to think of an answer to that question, which would I prefer more in the world? Because it, here's, the, here's, the th- here's the thing, here's the thing. Everyone knows the answer. All the extra thinking is, I don't want this to be true or I want this to be true. It's all mental gymnastics. If you had to choose now, you would say an answer. You may not like it. You may not like yourself for it, but you have an answer. Everyone has an answer. I think it's going to have to be the evil person who does good, right? There's no right. Yeah, exactly. There is no right. It's, but I think substantive change, you are correct. there, There can't be a correct or wrong answer because all I've been doing is I knew that oh, I, I, it would obviously be the person who does stuff. But then I'm like, but they're a prick. What? Why, mm-hmm. why, why? I don't. What? Oh. Um, and that's, yeah, that, and that's what I like to do, like, especially with, with my books, my work. Because you, you can never, you can't make someone think, but you can make someone feel. And so what you do is you, you present it in that scenario, you present something that really makes them feel, and then they start to think, or you, because you can't just say, well, this is the answer because, and here's a whole list of like peer reviewed facts of why you're wrong or why you're right. I mean, yeah, those are facts, but facts don't change people's mind. Facts don't get people thinking. Reality doesn't get people thinking. It's all how they feel, how they imagine. I mean, even, even back to, you know, the, the Xena question you asked earlier, I mean, how many fictional characters have inspired your ethics and morality than real people you've ever met? It, fantasy affects our lives much more than reality does. And so if you can show people that it's, you know, with my, my successful books are usually like these historical books of culture around the world. So a very specific way I do that for that is there is no real right or wrong in the world. Every choice you make is going to hurt someone. Every choice you make is going to help someone in some way. And sometimes your motivations behind it don't matter. 
And that's the way it's been in history. And you'll be you'll faced with questions like that all the time. But if you present as an extreme example, it makes you think. What makes you smile? <laughs> a lot of stuff. I'm actually very easy to just make smile. Uh, so it's everything from like something stupid, like my own jokes I say in my head that I think are funny, <laughs> um, to just little like humor things. I, but probably what really makes me smile is wit. That'll that'll always crack a smile out of my face, whether I like laugh or not. Someone who's like witty and sharp with something, because I'm I'm not a big fan of slapstick comedy. Um, but if you can say something witty, I'm like ah, that was clever. That was clever because again, it's like I want to do that. It inspires me. How do you feel about death? It's weird. I have a very love-hate relationship with it because um, I'm actually I'm a licensed mortuary professional. I've I've worked in funeral homes. I've worked the night shift at a mortuary. You know, helping to prepare the bodies, working with death. So I know it on a very, very um, elbow deep in the chest cavity level. But um, no, it's tough because when I first started that job, and I've I, you know, I've written books on death, you know, the way the world sees the afterlife, you know, magical death rituals from cultures around the world to even, you know, the cult of La Santa Muerte, whom I'm, you know, a devotee of. So it's, I've gotten all my existential dread out of the way, you know, like, what happens after death? Am I going to die? What happens to my family, my loved ones, and all that stuff that kind of like paralyzes you into a fear um, I got that out of my system right fast <laughs> working at the mortuary. So I don't, I don't fear it. I don't think it's bad. I don't really believe in a heaven or a hell. I don't really know what happens. So all that kind of like back end of death doesn't really happen. But again, it's that thing that motivates me, you know, back from, you know, when I was going to die to revisit that again. But it's true because it's, there's still so much I want to do, so much I haven't done that it's like, it's like a countdown clock, but I don't know where it started from. Like, I don't know how many ticks are left. I don't know how many times I have around. So that really scares me. And it drives me to be incredibly industrious right now, every second. Um, but as for death, as for leaving the mortal coil and no longer existing on earth, that's fine that's fine life is very hard and you, you no matter how you look at it you know life is like way too short or way too long to be live badly and back when i thought i was gonna die i thought it was too short that i lived it badly and now each year that i keep on surviving around the sun you know it's like oh god another year i best not live this badly you know i want things to get better and so both ends of the drudgery just go on but I'm cool with that. You know, it's, I, don't, I don't fear it, but I don't want it to happen. I, you know, yeah, I, it's okay if that happens. I just don't want to be there when it happens in a way. <laughs> I don't want to be there for my own death. It seems, oft, uh, it seems kind of awful. I'm a, you know, it, it can happen, but just don't involve me in it. <laughs> uh, could you tell me a little bit about the, you, you mentioned a, a cult of some kind. <laughs> I don't know. I got a thing for cults. Uh, I know nothing about this. I've never heard of it. Please tell me everything. Yeah, um, there's, it's it's really big here in the United States and, you know, especially in Southern California because we're so close to Mexico. There's uh, the cult of La Santa Muerte and essentially picture the Grim Reaper um, 
but imagine it's a female and that is my hair pokes me in my eye my quarantine hair pokes me in my eye um that's essentially santa muerte it's it's a it's a lot of people mexico worship death and it's not the deity of death it's not a saint of death it is death 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 incarnate as represented by a female grim reaper and i really got into that because my friend the same one who inspired me with the law of attraction i lived in nevada for a long time i'm up in reno and i came back and he's like hey you enter all that darkness stuff right i'm like yeah and he's like hey sometimes i and he was doing some pretty non-legal things. Like, hey, sometimes I cruise around, you know, downtown LA and East LA sometimes and we, you know, I go around and see the strip mall and it has a midnight, you know, and there's all these candles and there's all these people like praying like this giant, this giant skeleton woman. You're into that stuff, right? I'm like, I might be. It sounds really cool. What is the thing? And what you? he's like, hey, why don't you go to one of their masses? It happens like every Thursday or something. I was like, yes. So I thought it was super cool. So I was down for it and I went to it. But I, it was amazing. It was all these like really oppressed people, really downtrodden people that were just enraptured by this giant Grim Reaper praying to her. But And I was like, What's go- what the hell is going on? You know, it's like you're on a movie set and it's... But no one wanted to talk to me because I, you know, even though I, I speak Spanish and I'm half Latino, I look very Irish. You know, I, I have red hair, you know, super white skin. And so everyone thought I was like ICE, you know, the immigration or, you know, I was there to bust them. So no one wanted to talk to me about it. And they handed me this newsletter that had all these testimonials in Spanish of how Santa Muerte just gives them the will to live. So essentially all these people are, inspired by death death keeps them going to their jobs every day death keeps them from killing themselves you know it's and i was like what is going on that is not what i would do you know why what it didn't make sense you know i had to fix that puzzle it was fascinating because it's if you grow up in mexican very much east the very you know you got to be a man catholic culture of mexico um, you can't be anything different. You know, you cannot be any form of queerness. You cannot be any form of a self-empowered woman. You cannot do anything illegal. Anything that the church says is bad, you can't do. And if you do, you can't pray to God for it. You can't go to God for assistance because what? Is John gonna, is God going to help you turn that trick to, you know, earn money? Is God going to help you find a same-sex lover? Is God going to help you smuggle drugs across county lines? No. But Santa Muerte will because... Death doesn't judge. Death will take you whether you're good, whether you're bad, whether you're rich, poor, young, or old. And so all these people, as I found out, just wanted someone who would not judge them. Let them live their lives. And there's every, you know, look at all these pantheons and every deity has some sort of agenda, has some sort of ulterior motives, has some sort of like personal pettiness to them or something they want out of you for it. And here's death. Death wants nothing from you. Death doesn't want you to change. Death doesn't care if you're praying, you know, that the bullet hits someone in their heart or whether you're praying for a safe night to get home back to your family. Death will help you with both. And so you have all these misfits in society that just worship La Santa Muerte because it's a, it's a safe space. 
And even nowadays, like you go, a lot of them here in the Santa Muerte temples, as they call them, you know, they're run by trans women. A lot of homeless youth go there and they're helped by these people. A lot of really poorest of the poor go to get advice, help shelter and be with a community that doesn't judge them. And, you know, I wrote, I wrote a whole book about it, you know, the Santa Muerte, but it's, it's that whole thing of finding peace and acceptance and community through death and everything death stereotypically represents. And it was fascinating, fascinating. And I became, I became a, I became a believer right after that. I was like, Oh, this is, this is real. And then you start working the magic and doing it for yourself and you find out stuff starts happening. It's even more real. That is so beautiful. It has made me, because one of the, the reason why that question exists, and I've said this in previous podcasts, it's like, I'm terrified of dying, like the concept of not existing, but this idea of like, but it's like, she's there and she's just going to wait for you. And she's there to help. And someday she's just going to come along and she's going to give you a big hug and you're not going to be scared anymore. And that's it. This is kind of like the maternal figure of death is quite, quite an appealing image to me. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing because a lot of, especially working in the funeral industry, there's so many shenanigans that go on. There's so much, you know, they take you for a ride, you know, they overcharge you stuff. And the thing about it is, is that everyone's so scared of death that no one wants to ask any questions. And when you don't ask any questions about anything, it becomes this boogeyman figure. And then, you know, people in the industry can rip you off. And then death also becomes this horrible monster. But if you can just, you know, nothing's to be feared, only better understood. And if you understand it better, it's not so scary. But yeah, what, in fact, one of the things that really makes me not fear death and the afterlife is I can't even conceive of it. Like, there's no way I can even think about what happens. Because you know, I, I say this in one of my books, and it's because um, a lot of people think, oh, well, nothing happens after death. And, you know, you try, you poke them a little further. It's like, well, what do you mean nothing happens after death? And they say, oh, you know, it's, it's just, you know, this is blackness. You know, the, the reel goes up on the camera, and it's just, you know, the black screen. But that's not true. That's not nothing. Because you still have to have a consciousness to perceive the nothing, to perceive the void. There has to be something recognizing it. A human mind, or at least no one, not mine, or anyone I know, can conceive of not conceiving anything, not being, not bearing witness to anything. Because again, we always go to the void, blackness, oblivion. But again, you have to have a conscious perception of that in order to recognize it. So I don't even know what no perception, no consciousness is. There's no way that I can even think about it. And I have too much to do right now. I cannot waste my time on something that I cannot answer. So that's why it didn't scare me. <laughs> Tell me about something you learned recently that amused you. One of the books I recently got done reading was um, Andy Warhol's autobiography. The philosophy of Andy Warhol, as he like magnanimously called it to. Um, and it was always explained about why he had such, you know, that unique white hair for so long, which is, you know, a toupee. And it was brilliant. Like, it made me want to, like, start having white hair and a toupee, too, because it was just, it was brilliant. And the reason he says is, in so many words, like, I'm going to get old. If I have white hair right now when I'm really young, no one's going to notice that I age. No one's going to start seeing the white hairs. No one's going to see the gray. No one's going to see me balding. I'm going to wear a toupee right now, and it's going to be white, 
it's going to make me look young forever. I was like, that's brilliant. That's so true. I'm like, I wish I could do that. But like, I don't know. My hair, my hair is too red where it's like too, too iconic. Like, honest to God, sometimes I walk in places with a hat on and people don't know it's me because they're just looking for like the little red blob that moves around. But I thought that was brilliant. That, that, really, that kind of like showmanship in everyday life really made me smile, really made me think like, huh, glamour magic. <laughs> what is beautiful? Everything, if you look close enough, honestly. Honestly, everything is beautiful if you really look at it. It's not some sort of like, it's not meant to be a pleasing answer for everyone. Like, oh, everyone's beautiful. Everything's beautiful, baby. Don't worry. No, it honestly is. I mean, everything takes some sort of art and crafts. I mean, again, probably because my mind is still on it. Like Andy Warhol, he took everyday objects that you find like a grocery store all around you, things that are not art, put it in paint, put it in a frame and says, look, no, it is art. Look closer. I put a frame around it. And it is art and it is beautiful and people pay a lot of money for it. And if you look at like, or across the, what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at a, a tea box. So I'm drinking some tea and there's art on it. I'm like, someone took the time in front of a computer to draw that art, make that, make it pleasing to the eye in a certain way. All that artistic effort for something that's like, oh, look, green tea. That's cool. Next. You know, there's, there's stuff like that everywhere. Like even, you know, glasses that you use, windows. I mean, of course, you know, nature, flowers, and all that jazz that everyone says, but everything around you, whether it's capitalistic marketing art, which is, you know, still art, <laughs> um, but everything, you just have to look closer. The exact same answer that I gave. Bam. Really? Thank you. Yeah. Everything, really? everything is beautiful, no matter what it is. Even suffering, pain, you know, death, even though I was, I was afraid of it. I'm not sure if I'm afraid of death anymore, which is wild. Um, but everything is beautiful because you can find like the best stories, the best paintings, the best everything. Like my favorite artist is Caravaggio. Uh-huh. One of Caravaggio's favorite things is to depict suffering and pain of ordinary people through biblical imagery. And they're the best fucking paintings because they're real. Everyone can relate to be- like pain and beauty. So you see like, uh, an athlete, put, like a weightlifter, getting that last few seconds before they get the bar into the air, that pain and struggle on their face, you're like, they're, that's when, look, look at it, like Google it. All of the p- pictures taken of weightlifters are taken, not when they have the thing in the air, but the moments of intense pain before they do it. Everything is beautiful. You just got to look. Just, I want to slap people across the face sometimes. It's like, oh, my life sucks. Yeah. And that's beautiful. So it doesn't suck as much as you think it does because it's beautiful. My mental health isn't amazing. But even when I am going through the ringer, I can always take a step back and go, this is absolutely beautiful. I have the privilege of being sad. Isn't that cool? Isn't that just bonkers? But I don't know, some people like have a very rigid view of beauty. That kind of, it's a limiting believe they believe it is beauty is one thing and then other people um i find the most interesting people just have like oh this bottle of water is beautiful or like you know it doesn't exactly i mean it's exactly i know it's and it's true everyone listening pay attention would you describe yourself as cute and cuddly i would describe myself as cute but not cuddly 
I'm I'm forgetting what the word is right now. Not off-putting, but like <laughs> distance. I'm I'm very cute. Like I'm I'm very self-aware that I'm cute. Though okay, this thing my my friend and I used to do very stereotypically like judging some we used to play this game you know you know when you look at your people watching and we'd see we'd see a guy and you can put a any guy is two of four categories according to my friends you know theory of the universe of looks what it is is every man is either sexy handsome cute or pretty every man is a combination of two of those and ever since then it's like oh you know i see it and everything now i think cute is one of those things i am definitely not cuddly I'm not very physical. I'm not the person who will like reach out and give you a hug. <laughs> you know, it's it's no. And I, I don't like to be touched. <laughs> I essentially no. Um, I'm not one for crowds. I don't like, not that I'm scared of it, but it's like, I don't like being around a lot of people. I'm definitely not cuddly. Where do you feel safest? The place I feel safest is probably like, believe it or not, it's like actually outside in an open area because if if i'm inside and it's like if it's an earthquake like i'm trapped what do i do you know i i have those thoughts how am i gonna escape how am i gonna get out of this room you know before i go anywhere what are the exits i'm very much someone who thinks like that but if i'm outside and if someone's trying to chase me i have like a 360 plane i could run in which direction i'm going i have all this open space i'm a fast runner i know i can do this i can get away i can get escape if anything falls i can see it coming you know nothing's gonna crumble above me Outside in a park, outside in nature, I probably feel the safest. If you were on a starship, what position would you hold? Hmm, position would I hold? I don't know. What keeps popping in mind right now is probably some sort of, um, probably some sort of an ambassador position, or at least that first that first contact reach out. Because it's it's not so much that I'm good with people, but I get along with people. You know, I can really understand it, and like even from my experience, you know, in life, you know, I can. I've lived so many places and you have to switch like switch cultures and switch things. And what do they mean in this culture? What does it actually mean implication for how I'm doing it? How do I say it in this language? I'm used to code switching really fast like that. So I know I have a skill in that. And again, you know, from my, you know, early 2000s iPod, I still have that's no longer manufactured use. I'm not a big fan of technology, so I would not have anything to do with that ship. I would be on it. But it would probably be something interpersonal like that. What is a feeling or experience you've had which does not have a word that you wish did? It's a very fascinating question. Probably a wist. Oh my God, how do I even say this? Because it doesn't have a word. <laughs> it would have to be that wistful, nostalgic feeling you have for a time and a place you have never been to or experienced. So, for example, it would be... Um, I was not like a teenager or in my 20s in the 1980s when, you know, arcade culture was happening. You know, everyone was watching MTV. From looking at so many movies, like, I kind of, like, feel like I've been there. And so when I watch an old 80s movie, it's like, oh, it's back, you know, back in those times. But I wasn't there during those times, but I feel like I was. And then thinking about that, it makes me feel nostalgic to go back to those times. But I was never in those times. That, if I could, like, condense that into a word, that would be it. Do you think there is more good than bad in the world? No, I think they're both in equal measure. Um, because, again, you know, what, what is good? Is good, is my idea of good? 
your idea of good. So I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't want to say I don't think good or evil exist, but I think everything is gray, and everything is essentially what we make of it in its most absolute practical terms. Because that's just that's just that's just how I've seen the world and how I've seen things and interacted with it. There's everything can hurt you. Everything can help you. Everything helps someone else. My gain could be your loss. I mean, like I, what one example I had was which was really very awkward. <laughs> I was, I was at this big convention, right. And I was, I was giving all these presentations and um, my editor pulled me aside right before I was about to step on the elevators, pulled me aside with this other person who was very happy, very excited. But she, my editor, she wasn't very happy or very excited. I was like, Oh, this is an awkward conversation she wants to have. So she pulls me aside and we start talking and he, um, what she does is she says, Hey, you just wrote this new book, which was um, the one about the afterlife death rituals, morbid magic. And he's like, this person has an idea he wants to pitch to you, but he, he knows you work in the fuel industry. So he wants your advice on it. I was like, okay. And he starts pitching the same exact book I just pitched. So it's essentially quote unquote my book, but I had, but just like the week prior, I signed the contract for that. And this person is this, you know, this guy, this kid always wanted to be, you could, you could tell in his face, always wanted to be an author. This was his great idea. This was his grandest thing. You know, he was going to make it. His dream was going to come true. One of us was going to get it. I just got it before he did. And he talked to my editor later. If he would have submitted that like a week earlier before I did, submitted mine, he w- it would have been the other way around. It would have been, the contract would have gone to him because it's a great idea. <laughs> And so again, what is good? I mean, it was a good, you know, it was a, a good idea for the book, but my win was his loss. His win would have been my loss. Uh, would our losses have been equal? I mean, I've, I've published books prior to that and it would have been his first. So would my loss have been less of a loss? Would that made it less evil, a lesser evil? I, I don't know. I just think they, it's an equal measure. What happened with that guy? Did you have to dash his hopes? No, no, I didn't know. God, no, you know. You never, you never do that. Never do this. I think I said that was a great idea, but I also had to be honest with them because I'm not big on, I'm not big on saving someone's feelings if it means saying something that's not true. I'm very much, here's the truth. It's going to hurt you. It's your job to get over it in advance. But I didn't just blow him straight in his face like that. I'm I'm sure I said something like, hey, that's a great idea. I think I... I'm sure I alluded to like, I pitched something similar or I've already been working on an idea, kind of like hint, hint. I told him without telling him, I think. It was a couple of years ago, but yeah. It's, mm-hmm. I haven't heard from him since, so I don't know. And if he's listening, if you come up with that good idea, I'm sure you can come up with more. <laughs> if you could give just one piece of advice, what would that be? Oh God, don't take life seriously. Don't take life. Not, don't, don't, not, don't take life too seriously. But don't take life seriously. I mean, you know, the joke I always say is, you know, if life was meant to be taken seriously, God wouldn't be playing so many jokes on us all the time. But it's because everyone, everyone's so, you know, not in a joke way, you know, why so serious? But everyone is way too serious about themselves. They take, they take everything they care about so seriously, whether it's, you know, something like a sports team to even their, you know, driving goals and ambitions. I mean, the thing you lust after in life, you can't take that too seriously. Because it might not happen. 
Or if it does happen, it might not go to the extent that you want it to happen. And then you'll just be miserable because you'll always be wanting the bigger thing. So seriously, but if you just learn, you know, like with that beauty thing, if you just learn to look closer at everything and appreciate not the perfection of each moment, but just how, how fun every moment is, even if you haven't achieved what you're trying to achieve, you enjoy yourself on the way there. And even if you don't get there, then you've enjoyed the journey. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about.